This is the Bigger Pockets podcast, show number 344. It was building that relationship and letting people know, hey, here's what I'm looking for. They would have no idea had I not told them. And same with the seller finance and it's going in there and really trying to find out, hey, what is it that these people want and need and trying to create a deal, giving them what they want and really creating that win-win scenario. But such a relationship business. You're listening to Bigger Pockets Radio, simplifying real estate for investors large and small. If you're here looking to learn about real estate investing without all the hype, you're in the right place. Stay tuned and be sure to join the millions of others who have benefited from BiggerPockets.com, your home for real estate investing online. What's going on, everyone? This is Brandon Turner, host of today's Bigger Pockets podcast, the top real estate investing show in the world. We're here with my co-host, David Green. What's up, David Green? Not much, bro. It's been a really good weekend. I, I was on the phone with several different lenders trying to find someone that can help me finance property so I can start looking again. I'm a couple nice. of weeks away from training with a multifamily. I've got a partner I'm going to start looking at deals with, and I'm going to try to copy your model that you're doing with mobile home parks with some uh, multifamily residential housing. That's awesome, dude. Very, very cool. Yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm excited to see where you and, uh, and your buddy, I don't know if it's public yet, but your buddy that you guys are working with, I'm excited to see where that's going to go. So yeah, you guys are, uh, you guys are going to do good stuff, but, uh, yeah, I just got back from a whirlwind world tour Midwest 2019. I'm calling it, I don't, I don't have a name for it, but yeah, Ryan Murdoch and I went around and drove around the entire, uh, several different States. We went to Ohio, yeah. North Carolina, Illinois, your Instagram page is popping. You've had some good stuff popping. on there. You guys, if you're not following Brandon, you got to, he's beardy Brandon. That was some really good stuff you put uh, up. How many different places did you visit? We went to seven, well, we told, including like layover is like seven states in six days, but, uh, actual states was, yeah, three, three full states where we rented cars, got hotels, drove around. Oh, you had got that a bunch of stuff under contract. Camaro that you were driving around. Yeah. And it was a, uh, it was a Dodge challenge. Oh, it was sorry. fun. Oh, well, thank you at David Green 24 on Instagram. Thank you. All right. Uh, that said, let's get into today's show. Today's show is unbelievably good. Really good advice about getting into real estate, especially if you don't have a lot of cash. Our guest today, his name is Gabriel Hamill. He is a real estate investor down in the Oregon area who lives in a more a slightly more expensive market. So it's not like he's living in the, you know, you buy a house for $6. I mean, he's he's got a, a pricier market, but he's able to make that happen. He was able to build his portfolio largely using no money of his own uh, using seller financing a lot. He's really, really good with seller financing. In fact, we talk a lot today about seller financing. How do you talk with sellers? How do you encourage them to sell to you for no money down? Things like that. In fact, one of the fire on questions, he specifically says, here's what I would do if I only had 500 bucks, uh, which is kind of cool. Uh, speaking of all, oh, not fire on, but speaking of uh, the end of the show, the famous four, we go really dark and disturbing for a second. So make sure you guys stay tuned for that in the book recommendation section. And uh, I don't know, it's just such a fantastic episode. He's also one of the most fit people I've ever known. Uh, I mean, he's just super in shape and he actually broke a world record. Stay tuned for that as well. And you'll learn how that mindset transfers to real estate, something that everybody here can apply. But before we bring in Gabriel on today's show, let's get today's quick, quick tip. tip. All right. Today's quick tip. 
hey, do you guys ever listen to David and I here? Or is it me and David, David and I? I don't know, whatever. And think, you know, I could do that. Like, I could, I could do that. Well, look, if you or anyone else has a great idea for a new Bigger Pockets podcast and you have what it takes to host it, you know, because what makes Bigger Pockets really like such a special community is just that it's a community. And in a community, the most valuable asset is you guys, the users. Uh, and so I know you have a lot of ideas. You think a, a cool idea for a show or maybe you want to host a show or something uh, and you've had this idea for a while. Well, we're going to give you a place to pitch uh, our producer for launching a new show. I mean, we got the three right now, but we want to have more. So uh, just keep this in mind. It's got to be something new, something different. So bring your crazy idea. Like it's, you know, if you just think you'd be better than David or, or me, like that's, you, you might be, you might actually be way better than us on a show. But we, what we're looking for is not just somebody else who can host a real estate show, but a different topic or format, something that BP could do differently or better than anyone else. So if you've got an idea, here's what you got to do. Go to biggerpockets.com slash pitch, P-I-T-C-H, and fill out the form there. And we will not be able to reply to everybody, I'm sure, but we will look at every application. And this is really an awesome opportunity. And I'm like super pumped to see kind of what come what comes out of it. So anyway, again, biggerpockets.com slash pitch. We'll see you there. Remember when you had to pay to get a leads phone number? It was like the dark ages until Deal Machine made skip tracing a thing of the past. Now, with your Deal Machine plan, you'll get unlimited access to phone numbers and contact information for no extra cost. That's right. Get high quality, reliable information trusted by leading financial institutions, all fully compliant with the federal do not call list. Explore over 150 data points, including age, gender, marital status, occupation, and a ton more. Trust me, this is the data you need for off-market deals. With new filters, people flags, and color-coded phone numbers, lead management just got a ton easier. Ready to step up your investing game? Sign up for a Deal Machine plan today and gain immediate access to this unlimited treasure trove of contact information and phone numbers. Just head to dealmachine.com BP. Transform your lead generation and deal-making strategies with Deal Machine. Sign up today and start exploring the unlimited possibilities at dealmachine.com slash BP. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that I turned one of my first homes into an Airbnb? It's true. And it even helped me get the extra income I needed to launch my real estate career. So if you want to try your hand at making even more income with your property, Airbnb is the place to be. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Passive income without the property headache? It's possible. There's a way to invest passively in real estate and get monthly income without any tenants, maintenance, or property management. The Wealthy have been doing this for years, and if you're an accredited or high net worth investor, you too can collect cash flow without the headaches that come from owning rentals. How? By investing in a private real estate fund with PPR Capital Management. PPR's co-founder, Dave Van Horn, wrote the book on real estate note investing for BP. But he's not just investing in notes. Dave and his team also have an extensive background in commercial real estate. And with PPR Capital Management, they're strategically investing in both notes and commercial real estate nationwide. With over half a billion dollars in assets under management, PPR has provided individuals with a steady source of truly passive income since 2007 without ever missing a payment. Check them out at investwithppr.com. Again, if you're looking to get monthly passive income from an experienced team with a strong track record, go to investwithppr.com today. And I think it's time to get to the show. Like I said, today's show is going to be fantastic. It's with Gabriel Hamill. Uh, you'll love it. And take notes because this stuff can apply to your business, no matter if you're on your first deal or 50th deal or 1,000th deal. It doesn't matter. This stuff is solid. Without further ado, let's get into the interview. Hi, Gabriel. Welcome to the Bigger Pockets podcast, man. Good to have you here. Hey, thank you. Excited to be here. 
Yeah. So let's go into your story and get uh, figure out how you got into real estate. What, where did that begin? Like, what were you doing before and, and how did you decide you want to be a real estate investor? Yeah, I was uh, freshly out of high school about a year out. I had, I had had some, uh, different low paying minimum wage jobs and I picked up rich dad, poor dad. It was first book that I ever read in my life, cover to cover word for word. I couldn't, couldn't put it down. Um, and so right then and there, I had it in my mind that this is, this was what I was going to do. That's awesome. When was Uh, that? That was in 2001 and in 2003 to 2004, I was deployed to Iraq. I came back 2005, bought my first single family home, right, right in the middle of the subprime market. Uh, bought my first three properties, 2005, 2006, 2007. Um, you know, you always hear the bad stories of people yeah. buying in the subprime. I had, I had no job and was able to get approved for a property. I bought well in 2005, six, seven. I still own those properties. Um, and then as uh, 2008 hit, I got into a lot of seller financing deals and built up a large portion of my portfolio doing seller financing deals in 2009, 10, 11, 12, oh, wow. uh, and, and continued to buy uh, multifamily and uh, close on my first mobile home park recently. No, that's awesome. I did not yeah. know that. That's, that's very cool. All right. Yeah. So let's, let's, let's unpack all that. So first of all, now, we might as well get an ending. Where, where are sure. you at now? Like how many, how many units do you have? How many tenants do you have? That kind of thing. Yeah. I have 140 units right now. So you're just getting started. And, yep. yep. <laughs> that's <laughs> and, awesome, dude. Yeah, and, it, and, it, and it's a mix, you know, it's a mix sure. of single family, small multifamily. And as the years have gone on, have moved to a more medium size and larger multifamily. Okay. Very nice. So let's go back then to the beginning. So you yes. bought these properties in 05, 06, or 07. Why? Because we're in a we're in a similar market. I think a lot of people feel today, right? Today Correct. the market is crazy competitive, just like it was back in 05, 06, and 07. And people are worried, well, should I just sit around and do nothing and just sit it out until the market comes back? What do you I mean based on your experience now, how would you advise those people? You know, I, I think it's always a great time to buy. It just it's uh more of a matter of how you how you buy the property. Um, you know, I started off with almost no money. And so I had to get creative. And the fact that a bank would qualify me, I didn't go out there and buy the biggest home that I could possibly get financed on. I went and bought a, bought a three bedroom, two bath home. I house hacked the house before I knew what house hacking was, bought the house, rented two of the rooms out, was living cheaper than I could have lived anywhere else. Uh, and it just made good financial sense. And so then I did the same thing with my second one. Um, you know, these were, these were 80, 20 style loans, but I was able to come in with no money down. So, so it gave me the Can you explain what that is for those who don't know? Cause I, that's, I, my very first one was the same thing. Yeah. So the bank, the banks would say, instead of 20% down, you can go get a second mortgage for that 20% down. So instead of having one loan on the house, 80% of the loan of the, or 80% of the purchase price covered the property and the other 20% you would get from as a second lien or a second mortgage. Yeah, that was cool. Yeah, my very first property was that way. Uh, and even my house I bought right now in Maui, like I got an I got a 80 10 10 loan, so it was an 80% first, 10% second, 10% down payment. And so I don't usually see the 80 20s anymore, but I do see the 80 10 10s occasionally. Yeah. The reason you want to do an 80 10 10 is because you're avoiding the PMI on that first loan. If you don't have 20% to put down, most banks will hit you with the PMI. So if you do an 80-10-10, you're doing 80%, so no PMI, 10% second loan. Often they do it like a HELOC. Is that what they did with yeah, you, Brandon? That's what they did. Yeah. And then 10% down. Yeah. There you go. So, all right. So you, you said you got these properties. 
then the market crashed. So I'm like, what did you do during that time? And you were still buying, right? Like, or did you sit out? Were you nervous? How'd that work? Yeah. So it was, it was actually interesting. So I had the three properties. They were all cash flow positive, essentially, but, but only by a couple hundred dollars a month. I, I had a small nutrition store at the time that it made money. But again, some months were a couple hundred dollars a month. And so I'm sitting here thinking, I have to buy a lot of single family homes in order to cash flow enough to be financially free. Yeah. Um, and so I'm just doing, I'm just doing the math. And so the more I learned and the more I read, I, I, I realized seller financing has so much more flexibility. And so I really started looking for seller financing deals. And, and I was scouring Craigslist. I was knocking on doors. I was making phone calls. And that's where I really was able to build up uh, a large portion of the portfolio was 2009, 10, 11, 12. I, I found a lot of sellers that were interested in selling. These were really good people that just didn't love managing property. A lot of them were busy with uh, their own business or another job. Um, and so I looked for homes that the, the three things that I really looked for were properties that had that were under rented, deferred maintenance, and had some upside, some upside potential. And, and that's where I was able to come in and create a real win-win scenario with myself and the seller. I was able to offer them something that, that would be beneficial to them as well have an upside for me. You mentioned that you were finding a lot of your deals off Craigslist and kind of off market stuff. Yep. And what I'm going to guess is because you were on the MLS using agents, you had options to communicate directly with the seller, which led to seller financing conversations. That usually doesn't happen once you have agents involved in the houses on the market. Can you explain what seller financing is and how you made the transition into having those talks? Yeah. So with the seller, so seller financing is rather than going and getting a bank loan, you have the sellers carry the financing. And typically this would be done on a property that they own free and clear. There's, there's ways to do it if they don't. But the first several properties I did, these were, these were sellers who had bought the properties in the 1970s and they had had the homes paid off. And so I structured a deal. I structured deals where instead of getting the bank financing, they carried, they carried the mortgage. And so there was so much more flexibility there. A bank will say, we want this much down here's your interest rate. Here's, here's the terms and being able to sit down directly with a seller and finding out what's important to them. Some sellers, it was the down payment that was important. Some sellers, it was the interest rate. Some sellers, it was the price. And for me, I didn't have any money to start. So I had to negotiate, Hey, I'll do a no money down or low money down deal, but I'll give you the price you want, or I'll give you the interest rate you want. And it created a lot of flexibility there. They, they were happy because they weren't dealing with tenants. They weren't dealing with the turnover or the maintenance and the repair. They were able to get a check from me. That was my mortgage payment to them. They were happy. I had the upside of, Hey, these properties uh, typically had not the best tenants, deferred maintenance. So I could clean those properties up, get better tenants, get better rents. And in the meantime, the seller was collecting a, a check every month and happy as can be not having to deal with, deal with all the maintenance and the tenants. Yeah, that's that's the neat thing about seller financing is that it, you really can create a good win-win like kind of solution here. Uh, and, and by the way, if anybody still is confused about it, this is the way I, I like to explain it. Like if you were like, you know, explain to me like I'm five. Like imagine you owned a car and you sold your car to your brother, right? But your brother didn't have any money, and so you 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 give you know you sell the car to him. It's his car now. But instead of him paying you two thousand dollars today. He just pays you $200 every month for the next couple of years. And so it's, it's just like that, but with a house and if they don't have all the money, 
They just pay you. It's still their house. Legally, you actually do transfer the title, but you actually sign the same paperwork that you would sign with a bank. You just sign it between two people. And most title companies can take care of that with no problem. It's pretty simple. Uh, Or attorneys, if you're on the East Coast and they use attorneys in that state. So anyway, yeah, pretty simple concept. So I want to know, by the way, does that sound pretty good? Like definition? definition? Yeah, absolutely. And one thing I was going to say, too, is. You know, I never had to convince a seller of carrying the financing. Every and, and it took years kind of reflecting back to all the seller financing deals I'd done and was like, hey, what what worked? And I realized that every seller that carried the financing on a on a property, they already wanted to. These were sellers that already understood the benefit mm. of essentially being the bank. They didn't want some lump sum of cash because they would have to pay that huge capital gain on that money. They wanted a paycheck every month. And so these sellers were, they were happy being the bank. They were happy collecting interest. They wanted, they wanted to do this. So. So one thing, my understanding of how seller financing works in this case, from a tax perspective is there's massive benefits to the seller themselves. So were they to sell you a house for 500 or a property that they paid 300 for, they'd have a $200,000 gain minus whatever, you know, they could write off from it that they'd get taxed on right away. Yeah. So let's say that they, plus, they plus walk the away. recapture depreciation, which is a much more in-depth thing, but that could add another couple hundred thousand dollars of taxes onto that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So they might end up with a four or $500,000 tax, like. You know, so let's say that's yeah. the case. They walk away with, uh, like, you know, they, they, so they had a $200,000 gain, but they only walked away with like 50 grand or a hundred yeah. grand that they got to keep. Right now they take that 50 or a hundred and they go invest it with somebody else and they get, you know, a six or seven, 8% return, but it's on half the money or less than half the money that they made. Were they to do it with you? They get to get a percentage that you're paying them on the seller financing, but they, they get it on the full sale. They don't lose it in taxes right away. Exactly. And the, the taxes they pay is only on the interest that they're making. Is that a good understanding of how that works from a tax perspective? As far as my understanding, absolutely. Yeah. 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 So, and sellers don't often know that they don't realize when they sell to you for that price. Cause that's kind of what we all, Oh, I, I made this much money. They're not looking at the big picture. They're not considering taxes. And you know, even if they think they could get a better return somewhere else, they're getting it on a smaller chunk of capital because they had to pay so much in taxes. So yeah, that's yeah. a benefit to us when we're trying to use seller financing to buy, if we can explain that. Yeah, that's a great point. And, 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 you know, another thing I would say with seller financing or even the first three properties with, even though I worked with an agent on those first three properties, it's such a relationship business. You know, the first property, it was a hot market. And, um, I bought a house from a friend of the realtors who had bought it, renovated it and was, was flipping it essentially. But I'm standing there going, Hey, I have no competition. Nobody knows this is for sale except for me and my agent, you know? And so it was such relationship business. And, you know, the, the second property, same thing. I owned one house and decided, Hey, I'm a real estate investor. I made business cards. I'm passing these things out to everybody. And the second house, you know, the guy I met at the gym, he's like, Hey, my friend's, my friend's dad's selling this house. And it was in the neighborhood I was looking for. So again, even in that hot market, it was building that relationship and letting people know, Hey, here's what I'm looking for. They would have no idea had I not told them. Uh, and, and same with the seller financing. It's such a relationship business going in there and really trying to find out, Hey, what is it that these people want and need and trying to create a deal, giving them, uh, what they, what they want and really creating that win-win scenario, but such a relationship business. Did you also land these seller finance deals once you got into large, once you got into the larger, you know, the, the small and then medium size. And then, you know, did you also get seller financing or have you shifted over away from that? 
So I did a lot of seller financing. And then in 2014, in 2014, I refinanced a lot of the seller financing deals into long-term fixed mortgages. Um, and I did that because rates hit 4%. And so I was able to take a lot of these seller financing deals. All the Now I invested in for cash flow. Every deal I did, I made sure I was cash flow positive. I was not in a position where I had a bunch of capital to be cash flow negative. And so I always focused on cash flow first and I looked at appreciation as a bonus. Now I bought in areas that I, that I felt strongly that appreciation would happen, uh, but I focused on cash flow. So in, in 2014, a lot of these homes that I bought in 2009, 10, 11, 12, they appraised out, all of them appraised out 30% loan to value or sorry, sorry, 70%, yeah, yeah. 70% loan to value. And so Again, I'm doing the math going, gosh, if I would have had to put 30% down on every single one of these properties, which was not a possibility at, at that time, uh, we're talking a lot of money. Um, but because the properties, I was able to get better tenants, increase rents, and, and go to the bank, it, it, these properties now made sense for those 30-year fixed mortgages. And so in 2014 was the kind of the first time since you know 2007 that I went back to bank financing. Um, but I still hadn't done any more purchases using bank financing. Okay. Uh, and I, and I continue to use seller financing to this day. I mean, I, I do work with, with banks and some private money now. Um, but I, I like, I like the seller financing because of the flexibility. There's just so much more flexibility, so many more options for the seller and for the buyer. Yeah, so true. So I'm wondering, what do you say to somebody who is like, you know, I asked this person, I've asked a couple people about seller financing. They've, they've all rejected me. This doesn't work. Like, how do you, how do you find those people? What do you say to them? I'd say they haven't asked enough people or told enough people. Um, you know, some of it's a numbers game and, and really it's just, it's just putting the word out there. You know, um, I've met with a lot of people and a lot of sellers that, uh, initially maybe seller financing isn't an option, but I keep, I, I make sure the conversation's open and I, I go in there with no expectation and it's just an open-ended conversation. Like, Hey, if that changes, give me a call, you know, and that, and that has happened. Um, you know, I had a woman who we would compete on deals together and then she called me and was like, Hey, I'm tired of competing on deals. Can I finance a deal for you? And <laughs> I had met her 10 years, 10 years before that, you know? So just having that, that open dialogue and, and going in there genuinely with, Hey, it's, it's a relationship. You know? Yeah. So how many seller financing deals have you done, Gabriel? Oh gosh. Approximately. Approximately maybe 25 seller financing deals. Oh wow. Yeah. Okay. Let's, let's do a little exercise. We're going to role play here. I'll be the seller. You be you. Let's go through how you would broach this conversation and how you would maybe like set the tone for what it's going to look like later. Sure. All right. So, uh, I have a 12 unit multifamily property and you got in touch with me. We've been talking about buying it. Yeah. Um, what do you, what are you looking at? How long have you had the property? I've held it for about 35 years or so. We've got it all paid off now. Okay. Okay. How come you're interested in selling it? Well, it needs some work. We just, we're kind of, we've been living off the cash flow. We don't really have any money saved up. I don't really want to put money back into it, but at the same time, this is my income. So I don't really have money coming from anywhere else. Okay. Do you own anything on the property now or is it, do you have it free and clear? No, we own it free and clear. There's, there's no loan on it. Okay. So would you be interested in carrying financing if you could continue to get a, a check every month without having to deal with the tenants and repairs? And is, is that something that would be interested to you? 
Well, it probably depends on how much money it would be. And then, you know, how much I could sell it for to somebody else. I'm not looking to just give it away. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think the property is worth? You know, we think we could get about 1.3 for it. 1.3. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I could potentially, I could potentially give you the price you want. I mean, is there a down payment you need? Is it, is it the cash, the down payment that you want, or are you looking more to just, just have that monthly, that monthly payment? Well, we're getting a little bit older. I think we'd like a little bit of money in the bank. It feels good to have, you know, a little bit set aside. Maybe you want to take a vacation here. I haven't taken my wife out in 20 years, so she's, she's due for something, but you know, really all, I guess all we really need is some cash flow. If we're not going to have this, we need money coming from somewhere. Yeah. Let me, let me think about it look over everything and, and get back to you. Okay. See, yeah. that's great because you didn't try to offer on the very first conversation. Let me buy your house right now. Sign on the dotted line. Yep. Person you didn't know you, you ask the questions of them, which I think most people don't do good enough. We talk about this on my real estate team all the time yeah. is you have to ask questions of the other person to see what's in their head, what they're thinking. And if they say no, the very next thing needs to be why. You know, I come back from a weekend of showing homes and looking at offers and talking to clients. And, and the very first question that I have to do, or the first thing I have to do is start asking questions of everybody who's involved. So they want to write an offer on the house. They're not pre-approved for as much. We need to call the lender and say, what do we have to do to get pre-approved for more? Do we have to talk to a different lender? Do we have to use a different loan package? And so many people just, they fail the minute that they hear someone say, you can't do it. Okay they give up and they move yeah. on to the next thing. But like you hang out with Brandon Turner for long enough and you <laughs> stop, you stop doing that. That guy's asking like, how do we do this? And in yeah. any regard. And I so, never, I never want a seller to feel forced to sell me a property at all. Yeah. And I, and I truly want to give them what they want, whether it's the price and it's, it's, they're usually stuck on one thing. It is the price or it is the mm -hmm. down payment or it is the interest rate. And sometimes uh, it's, it's something so crazy that it, it probably won't make sense. You know, they say, Oh, I want 50% down or 75% down. And in that case, I could go get better financing at a bank. But in a, in a lot of cases, you're able to give the seller one of those things that they want. One of those, Hey, I'll give you that interest rate you want, but can you, are you a little more flexible in the down payment? And then I, I never make offers right away just because I want that time to also go over the numbers and yeah. really come up with something that would be beneficial to both, both parties. What's something that you learned doing this a few times that you wish you had known when you first started about how to approach people with seller financing opportunity? You know, I think, I think starting off, I didn't, I, I understood that it was, uh, it was relationship, but I, I focused more on the numbers and the deal. Um, but I think starting off, if there was, if there was one thing, I think I would, I would look at more, more properties and find, and try to find more sellers that were in a position to, to carry financing. So it was almost my, my first seller financing deal. I was almost surprised. I'm looking at the numbers going, okay, this makes sense. What am I missing? This makes sense. What am I missing? Um, and there were probably other opportunities out there um, that I don't know if my, my mindset at the time was, was big enough yet. I was so mm. excited about, hey, these two duplexes are going to sell our financing, carry the financing on. And so stoked about that maybe I miss an opportunity to, to do another seller financing deal. So you would have stacked your funnel harder. A little bit, a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I went after it. I went after it, but I think there was some opportunities um, that I didn't take advantage of. Sure. Can you walk us through what happened? I mean, you bought all, you bought these single family houses. That sounds like, and then you started getting a little bit larger. Can you like, what size are we talking about when you said you got larger? What's your largest property? Uh, what's a typical property that you buy today? Yeah. The mobile home park I closed on recently, uh, it's, it was 43 units. Okay. And, and where's that at? 
It's about an hour south of me. So I'm in Eugene, Oregon, and it's about an hour south of me in Roseburg. Uh, almost all my other properties are within 10 minutes of where I live. Really? Uh, and that's, an, I mean, like, that's not, Eugene is not like Portland, but it's not like a super cheap market either. Is it like, what's a typical price right now? Yeah. Like medium home prices in the mid, mid three hundreds. Okay. Uh, yeah. It's, it's a college town. So uh, around the campus area, it's, it's kind of its own little ecosystem, its own little bubble. Uh, but there's different, different parts of town. I think it's really important to know your sub market too. You know, I, I know Eugene very well. I didn't plan on necessarily only investing in this market, but as I started buying and as I started building my network, uh, it was just kind of this organic growth and, uh, knowing that sub market, whether you invest in your own town or another town, those sub markets are so important because there's parts of town that I wouldn't invest in or would be unlikely to invest in. And there's parts that I absolutely know are desirable areas or up and coming areas. Yeah. Yeah. That's such a gold piece of advice. It's just like understand that market. Cause like, I mean, you go block over sometimes in a market and just have a, it's ridiculous there. So either you got to understand it or as David argues in his book, you know, the like long distance real estate investing, like either you got to understand it or you got to have some trusted advisors who completely understand it. Where a lot of people are just like, oh, you know, it sounds great to buy in, you know, whatever the Midwest or, or a college town or something, you know, like a, a cheaper priced area. They just go by there because the numbers are so much less than what they assumed. But I mean, some yeah. of my worst deals I've ever done have been that my lowest priced properties because they were cheap, but they were in the wrong neighborhoods, wrong areas. So yeah, really understanding that. Do you have any advice for people who are listening to this who are like, well, how do I get to know that market? How do I understand? I mean, how do I pick a market first of all? And then how do I understand those dynamics and what road is better than what road? Yeah, I think you nailed it with what David, what you said David talks about in his book is either you know the market, you either have some time there and really know that market, or you have someone that you really trust or a team of people that you really trust in a market if it's not in your local, in your local market, uh, I would absolutely invest in other markets. If I had a team or new people or had people that I trusted to give me the information that I needed. So I think having that, just, just that, that knowledge, either boots on the ground or a strong relationship with someone. Yeah, that's great. You one of the things I see you did was you, you look for gentrifying areas where you buy your duplexes. And then we don't talk about a lot because it kind of broaches into this appreciation thing. And we don't want people buying properties just because they're going to appreciate, sure. but it's foolish not to consider that when you're looking at where you're going to invest, right? Yep. You don't buy stocks in a company that you don't think is going to sell more than it did before. Yeah. Yeah. So, right. Tell us what are some signs that you looked for that made you feel good about this area that you bought into and how you went about uh, gathering that information sure. and then executing. Yeah. Again, it was, it was just that local market knowledge of growing up here. There was an area near downtown where I live and as kids, it was, Hey, you don't go down there. Don't go down there. Don't go down there. A lot of drugs, lots of transient traffic. Yeah. Um, and you know, then I started noticing a lot of, a lot of businesses started coming down there. We had a big brewery come down here. A lot of shops were opening up, restaurants were opening up and it was a lot of really cool, big old houses that, that were really neat. And, and people wanted to be down there by the breweries and the shops and such. And again, you know, not just banking on the appreciation. I made sure these properties were cash flow positive. Never, yeah. never one of these deals that I go in saying, Hey, this I'm buying this because it's going to go, going to double in value. I, I bought them for the cash flow, but knowing, Hey, appreciation is probably going to happen. If, if I'm wrong, I'm still going to be okay. Cause this property cash flows. Yeah, it makes sense. And and, and then you started seeing people, you know, uh, coming into these, coming into this part of the market and cleaning up 
house by house, street by street. You know, I wasn't the only one doing it. I would, I'd buy a property and clean it up in a block away. Someone would be buying a property and clean it up. You had a lot more owner occupants coming into this neighborhood. Yeah. Back on the show a long time ago, I don't remember who it was that said it, but it was a couple of years ago. They were talking about how when a market gentrifies, you, and, and by the way, those don't know what we're talking about. There's like, it's becoming from a crap, scary neighborhood to like the hipster neighborhood. Essentially, there's like this yeah. movement, right? Um, and it doesn't always mean hipster and doesn't always mean really crap. It just means you're dramatically improving a certain area and it's getting a lot more expensive and rents are rising and everything. So what they had suggested is you, you, they didn't, I think it was something like they don't want to be in the, the first 20% in, right? There's this famous quote that says something like the, the, the pioneers are the ones with the arrows in their back or, you know, like whatever, like, or like they're the ones that get, that get hurt first because they might have guessed wrong, but you don't want to be in the last, you know, 30% or 50%, maybe even either because you missed the big run up. So the idea is how do you get in that? Like, it's already a 30% gentrified. It's already 30%. 30% of the houses on the block have increased or 20, 25, 30% are increased. That's a good time to, to jump into those neighborhoods rather than, hey, this was a great, I mean, look at how much prices went up. Those are what people do all the time, right? Prices went up like 400 grand in this neighborhood over the last five years. It's crazy. You can't find a house anywhere here. Let's yep. invest there. Like that's this logic that people have the same thing to do is look how high Bitcoin got. You guys look, look, it was, it's at an all time high. It's crazy expensive. Let's get in now. Like right, it's like yeah. this completely absurd logic that so many people do because we look, we look historically. So anyway, I like that, like, you know, 20, 30% kind of rule. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and the other thing is I wouldn't speculate on the rents either. So just like I wouldn't yeah. speculate on the appreciation, I always based my numbers on what was currently happening there. Yep. So even though I, I said, Hey, this property, you know, could go up to market rent $500 more than what it's being rented at. I always based my numbers with those seller financing deals on what was actually going on at that time. And, and a good example was a six unit place that I bought where the rents were six fifty a month in a part of town where a thousand dollars a month was market rent. But I based my financing on that six fifty a month because if I was wrong, I yeah. want to make sure the property was still going to mm-hmm. work with the current numbers and the historic last couple of years. And so I think that's really important for listeners to know too, is, Hey, don't speculate on appreciation, but also don't speculate on rent either. Yeah. You know, I think part of the problem is this argument gets divided into a, a divisive, should you invest for cash flow or appreciation? And then it becomes an argument between the two sides. What I tell our clients that are looking to buy out here is you should invest for cash flow and appreciation. Yep. So it's, it's actually really simple. You look at all the parts of town that you can buy a place that will cash flow, and then you pick the one you think is going to appreciate the most. And you're not taking a risk and you're also improving your odds of getting upside. And you can really satisfy both sides of how investors make money. Cause you know, cash flow is so that you don't lose a property. A lot of people need to understand you're not going to make massive money very quickly with cash flow right away because with single family investing, it's just so unreliable. One, one tenant, you know, having a leak can, can wipe out six months of cash flow. So, so a lot of investors make their money with appreciation, but if you gamble on appreciation, then you get nothing because then you lose the property. You want to be able to find both of them. I love that what you said was, Hey, I I noticed that this was happening. So I wanted to buy there. And then, you know, rents did go up and appreciation did happen, but I didn't need it to. I would have been fine defensively if that was the case. You know, one thing I want to ask you, Gabriel, is I know you served in the armed forces, I believe in Iraq. Yep. And um, I'm, I'm sure you learned things in that environment 
that made real estate investing you know easier for you than it may have been for some other people. Yeah. So just as far as mindset, can you share some of the stuff that you gained from that experience that made it so taking action was easier for you than maybe sure. some of the people who want to be where you're at, but they're having a hard time getting over this mental hurdle can benefit from? Yeah, there was definitely some mindset stuff I learned, but I'll tell you more than anything. The biggest thing I learned in the military was I, for myself, was that I didn't want a boss. I didn't mm. want someone telling me what to do. And I knew that, I knew that at a pretty young age, but then going over to where you have someone telling you what to do 24 seven. Um, and I had just finished rich dad, poor dad, you know, shortly before I went over there. And so I'm telling everybody over there, oh, here, I'm going to come back and I'm going to buy real estate. And they're like, you're crazy, man. You didn't go to college and you've never had a, like a real, real job. You know, what are you, what are you talking about? And I was like, it doesn't matter. I'm coming back. But I think that's probably the biggest thing was just that I knew I didn't want to have a boss. I knew I wanted to work for myself as far as the, the, the mental toughness, you know, the, the military. And also I, I wrestled through high school and I coached wrestling and I feel like there was a lot of parallels there that I was able to take into the real estate world, you know, and, and some of that was just, Hey, know what you want, know what you want, and then find a way to get there. I knew that I was going to invest in real estate. I knew what my dream was before I knew how to execute it. And you, just, and then once you, once you get after it, you, you figure it out, you talk to enough people, you take action, you learn, you learn how to do it as you go. A question on that note, because a lot of people, I mean, you and I are exactly on that note. I think we even talked about this uh, when we were hanging out in Breck, but like a lot of people like have so much trouble knowing what they want. Right. Like it's one thing, like once you really have clarity on what you want in life, it's not that hard to go after it. I mean, like you, like if you really are clear on it, but people are just like, well, I don't know what I want and I I could do this and there's a hundred things or I don't know. What's your advice for those people? Yeah. You know, I think, I think taking time to really, to really think about what it is you want. I, I think that it's important to take time, whether it's meditating or you're on a walk and um, just reflecting on what it is you want, you know, for, for me personally, it was, I, I felt, I knew I wanted to be in business in some, in some way. And I always pictured that, you know, in an office in this nice suit. And, and that's not me, that's not me at all. And, you know, starting off, it was, Oh, when I'm young, I, I want to be rich. I want to be rich. I want to make all this money in real estate. But when I took some time to really think about what my why was, it really wasn't the money I was after. It was, it was the freedom. I really wanted time freedom. I wanted freedom to do what I, what I wanted when I wanted, uh, when I had kids, I wanted, and I have kids now, I wanted to be able to spend time with them. And I'm able to do that. I'm able to focus on my health. I'm able to, to, to build wealth in a fun, in a fun way on my, on my terms. And so I think not just getting clear on what you want, but why you really, why you really want it. Cause yeah. I think yeah. we hear a lot of talk about financial freedom. But when you dig, when you dig deeper, it's usually the time freedom that people really want, whether it's with their family or a hobby or something that they're very passionate about. So I think time is very valuable. Yeah. I I love that you bring that up because yeah, it's like, great. You got financial freedom, but you know, why do you want that? Like, what's the, what's the purpose? Because if you don't have like, yeah. And I think time freedom is what most people are thinking of and they just haven't really identified that. So then what they do is they get into real estate and work a hundred hours a week for their entire life. And then they're yeah. like, wait a second, something, something broke here. This didn't and, work the way they said. Yeah. And, and I'm not judging in the sense, like I know some people love, like truly love that grind. You know, they yeah. really, they love that. And, and I'm willing, I'm willing to work hard, but I also very much value 
my time to go travel and be with my family, take my kids to school, pick them up, go to, you know, go to their events, spend time with my wife. And so nothing wrong with the person that truly loves those hundred hour weeks. That's just not me. And so I think getting really crystal clear on what it is you want in life, because it is easy to build, you know, and I've watched people do this where they've built a large portfolio of properties and they, they could be financially free, but then they've, they've actually turned into, a lot more work. And so, yeah. and that's really something I try to, I try to take on, you know, any decision that I make, I really think about how will this affect my overall time? How will this, um, you know, this activity or this purchase affect my time? Yeah. You know, I know that you were a state champion wrestler in high school. You mentioned yep. your coach wrestling, but you were really good at it. And one thing that I found about anybody who's really good at anything is they can get the same results with less time and less effort. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. So, so you could go in there and if you're going to wrestle a guy who's your way and he doesn't have any experience wrestling, he's going to be pinned very quickly. He's not going to enjoy that experience nearly as much as you are, as opposed to that same person that you could beat very quickly. He goes against someone with a similar level of no experience and it's, they're going to both exert an insane amount of energy to finally get the result. And so when Brandon and I talk about financial freedom through real estate, it's not through just blindly throwing, you know, throwing the, the bait into the water and hoping some fish bites. It's about studying where fish are biting and what kind of lure you should be using and, and, and what part of the lake you should be fishing in. And what I'm getting at here is the better you are at whatever you do, the more you've earned the right to spend less time doing it, but to get more results. Real estate investing is not a thing you do so that you don't have to be good at something. It's something you do that so, so that as you become good at it, it gives you so much more back. You know, I always tell people you, you cannot outgive real estate. The more you put into your business and your properties and your knowledge, it comes back in spades towards you. Whereas you can't really say that about every job you could ever have. You might be a cubicle worker and you just dump into your company. You're not going to get anything back, right? Law enforcement was like that for me. I could just be the best cop that there ever is to be. It's, I'm never going to get more money. You know, the, 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 the department and the government's not going to pay me more. They're not going to take care of me as much as I take care of them. So I think you're a great example of you can have amazing results with 10, 20 hours of work a week if you get really good at what you do. And that's why we interview people like you and learn from you, from how you did it. I know that you mentioned that a lot of your deals have come from brokers, right? Uh, commercial brokers, residential brokers. You also mentioned the relationship side. Tell us some of the things that you've done to build relationships with these people and maybe how you recognize who it's worth building a relationship with. Yeah. You know, starting out, I, I, I did work with different brokers and I was always really honest and open just saying, Hey, I, I'm going to work with multiple brokers and multiple agents because I didn't know, I didn't know what they knew as far as investing goes. A lot of agents out there don't have a strong knowledge of investment properties. And so, and I wanted to be very clear with any agent I worked with that, Hey, I'm going to work with different agents and really, really try to see who would be the best fit for me. And that, and that's kind of changed throughout the years. I stopped working with agents quite a bit when I was doing the seller financing deals, but I still kept those relationships going. And I, I think it's important to find an agent and there's, there, there's not a ton out there, as you guys have said many times on the show that, that really understand investment property. And fortunately over the years, and it took a long time, I found, I found agents that, that did understand investment properties. And I think, yeah, I think, I think it's important that they, they know what you're looking for and why you're looking for it. And then that helps on the negotiation side as well. Mm. Yeah, that's good. That's really good. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. 
Did you know that a long time ago, before I ever started my real estate business, I turned one of my first primary residences into an Airbnb? And that's the extra income that I needed from Airbnb that gave me the confidence to go out and work for myself and eventually quit my nine to five job. And now I have dozens of Airbnbs all over the country. I've even partnered up with the old David Green on a recent property in Scottsdale to take our portfolio to the next level. And of course, we host it on Airbnb. But you don't need to be a full-time real estate investor to start on Airbnb. As a matter of fact, I was self-managing 10 properties while working my 9-to-5 job, so I know anybody can do it. Think about it this way. You're looking for extra income and going on a vacation. Wouldn't it be great to rent out your space and let your property pay for itself while you're gone? I did this one time. I pitched my wife and my roommate because we were house hacking on the idea of renting out our home, and it paid for all of our expenses on a trip to Mexico City. So go and give it a try. It might just change your life just like it did mine. And I really do mean that. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. As home prices and interest rates continue to rise and inventory levels dip, it's getting harder to find quality flips and wholesale deals. When there's not enough on-market inventory to go around, it's time to start looking off-market. Lucky for you, there are millions of homeowners nationwide who own a property they need to get off their hands. I got two words for you, my friend. Prop stream it. PropStream is the leading real estate data provider and recognized as a Tech 100 honoree by Housing Wire for the fourth consecutive year. With PropStream, you can search over 155 million properties nationwide using 120-plus search filters like pre-foreclosure, bankruptcy, pre-probate, failed listings, and more to help you find motivated sellers in seconds. PropStream offers both public record data and an MLS sales estimate that's over 99% accurate to help you get the most accurate comps even in non-disclosure states. PropStream also provides lead automation, skip tracing, and a marketing suite with emails, postcards, and custom landing pages to close more deals efficiently. Get started today with their 7-day free trial and get 50 leads for free. Head on over to www.propstream.com bp. That's www.propstream.com bp. You've heard us talk about it before. High interest rates are crushing real estate investors, leaving even some of the best investors in need of funding now. But with today's liquidity crisis, who can fill the demand? With Fundrise, America's largest direct-to-investor alternative asset manager, you have the opportunity to. Fundrise's new opportunistic private credit strategy was designed specifically for this new market environment. Fundrise supplies high-demand bridge financing on high-quality assets with credit-worthy borrowers. Top real estate investors get the funding they need while you walk away getting paid a healthy interest rate. To date, Fundrise has completed more than $500 million worth of private credit deals with an average net interest of 10.8%, and they've already amassed a pipeline worth more than $300 million. Don't sit on the sidelines. You can take advantage of this unique window of opportunity while it lasts with Fundrise's new private credit strategy. Ready to start? Go to Fundrise.com pockets to learn more. That's F-U-N-D-R-I-S-E dot com slash pockets. This is a paid endorsement for Fundrise. Past performance is not indicative of future results. All investments can lead to loss. You're trying to close on your next rental, so why is your insurance company dragging its feet? With long lead times and never-ending paper forms, it's no wonder it takes forever to finally get a policy. 
Modern investors deserve better. They deserve Steadily.com. At Steadily.com, you'll get fast, affordable landlord insurance available online 24-7 in just a few clicks. You can even get next-day coverage, which takes just minutes, by the way, to obtain. And you can do it all from your phone. Steadily was founded by landlords who created insurance products tailored to the unique needs of this industry. It's their sole focus, and that's why landlords nationwide consistently rate them 4.8 out of 5 stars. So whether you've got a single-family, short-term, or multifamily portfolio, Steadily.com can secure the best coverage at the best price to protect your properties. Discover how Steadily can save you both time and money on your rental property insurance. Visit Steadily.com for a commitment-free quote tailored to your needs today. I want to shift... Uh, one more topic before we kind of move on to like the deal deep dive and stuff. Uh, and that is like for those, I mean, most people aren't watching this on YouTube, but if you are great and if you're not, you know, just FYI, we push these on YouTube as well, but like, and maybe haven't met you in person, which David and I have, but you're like a super in shape guy. Like it didn't like you, what got a, like you passed the world record for like diamond pushups, right? Yeah, I did. I did. Yeah. yeah. I, I've, I've done it a few times. I have to resubmit to Guinness for the official approval. They have some, <laughs> They have some pretty strict uh, guidelines. And so, yeah, I'll resubmit. All right. But you're you're like legit in shape. So here's what I'm wondering on that journey of being like somebody who's like, because you have to have some self-control to be able to to be a really in shape person, like super like where you value that that health and fitness side of your life. I'm wondering how that in your head translates to success in other areas. I mean, like, cause you're just a rock star when it comes to that and you're rock star in a lot of ways, but how does that come? Like what mindset gets you? there in fitness that could apply to people in other areas like, like relationships or real mm. estate investing or things like that. Sure. You know, for me, it's, I, I'm, I'm kind of an all or nothing guy. Like if I'm going to do it, I'm going to, I'm going to do it, you know? So if I'm going to push myself in the gym or when I, when I'm doing high intensity, uh, body weight training, I'm, I'm going to go all out. And I took on, you know, real estate investing that, that same way. I mean, it starts in the mind. It really, start, you, you gotta, you gotta want it and know why. And, and then, and then you just get after it. So, and I think, you know, health plays a role in, you know, if I'm not healthy physically and mentally and emotionally, that's going to affect my, my business decisions ultimately. And, um, you know, the things really in life that are important to me, important to me, I think about how will this, you know, my family, my health, my wealth, you know, how do these decisions affect the community? And I, so when I make a decision, I, I think of all those, all those things. And I think they're all tied in. They're not just separate. You know, I don't want to just be a real estate investor. I don't yep. want to be healthy. You know, you meet different people where they ha- they're really strong in one area and I want to get after it in all areas of life. I mean, this is, this is my life. You know, yeah. I want to, I want to get after it. Yeah. I really, I really like that you said that. And cause it, a lot of people do, they focus so tremendously on one thing at a time, you know, one thing period. And obviously sure. it's hard to focus on like 50 goals at one time and I'm trying to do sure. everything, but what, I, I practice that a lot of us have probably done it, but I, I like doing it. It's called, they, call, they have a lot of names for it. Wheel of life or, or, you know, spoke of life. I don't know. Basically like you take this like paper and you kind of like draw a, uh, almost like a pie, like, mm-hmm. like eight little slices. And then each of those slices is a certain thing, like your fitness, your relationships, uh, your faith, your finances. Uh, and there's a few more there. You can guys can look up online, just like, like wheel of life goals or something like that. I'm sure you'll find it on Google, but, um, anyway, and then you shade in 
starting from the center point of the of each slice of pie, you shade in going outward towards the edge of the pie, how how good you are in that field. And so by doing that, you take a look at this whole pie and you see that maybe you're just really heavy on the right side. Like, I mean, though, your, your, your shading goes all the way out to the crust. But on the other side, like you realize your, your faith or your fitness or your you know, relationships, your family, your friends, whatever is only shaded a little bit. And you're like, okay, well, yeah, I'm not very well-rounded. And then like the, I, I think I, I, a big part of my life, and I think yours is what you're saying is you want to be like well-rounded. I think we call that like a whole life millionaire. It's not just like a, 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 a rich millionaire, but you're like, you're successful in all those areas. That's sound about yeah, right. You know, yeah. You nailed it. You nailed it. And you know, there was a period and there was a, <laughs> there was a period of time where it was a little out of whack where yeah. my fo- it was, it was only, I realized, you know, that I had spent so much time only studying wealth and only yeah study business and only study in finances. And I'm going, man, I, I haven't read a book on marriage. Yeah. I haven't read a book on parenting, yep. like, you know, personal growth. And that's really when I got into starting to study like personal development and, and going, Hey, I don't want to just be wealthy. Yeah. I need to take care of my, exactly what you said, a whole self millionaire. And so I started spending a lot of time in personal development and reading about how to be a better husband and a better, a better dad. And, and, yep. and that really, and, and that brings a level of uh, it completes you. Yeah. I, 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 you, you said something here. I haven't quite thought about in this term before, but I really like the way that like, this is going to my head. It's gonna be a blog post at some point here, but basically like people, like, everybody's an awesome at something. This is what I'm thinking. Everybody has something like you, for example, you might be like, Hey, you're awesome at uh, diamond pushups, right? Like, or, or fitness, right? You're, you're amazing at that. Somebody might be, Hey, I'm really, I'm a really good father. I'm just awesome at it. Right. Or I'm a really good dad or I mean a husband or wife, or I am awesome at real estate. Right. If you were to look at that and say, why are you awesome at that one thing? You can almost guarantee there is a pattern of, of education, a pattern of practice, a pattern of time, uh, you yeah. know, like a long length of time. Right. So then when people complain, and this is gonna be my go-to from now on, whenever people say like they're struggling in any part of their life, well, why don't you treat it like you treated that other thing that you're awesome at, right? Like you didn't get in shape on accident. You didn't, you know, buy that real estate on accident. So like when people are like, how oh, I'm really struggling with this, it's like turning around. I mean, if you're struggling, people listen to this right now, if you're struggling with anything right now in your life, like look at like, what did you do in the other areas of your life that you're awesome at? And how can you apply that same methodology to your life right now? Yeah, that is so spot on. So true. So true. And that takes time to reflect and, yeah. and think about, Hey, where, where have you spent your time? Yeah. I, 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 I use that practice all the time. Where have I spent my time? Where do I need to put more of my energy? Cause if it's yeah. in one place, of course that, that particular place will grow. But what yeah. about all the other parts of your life? Yeah. yeah. There's a saying we have in, in uh, real estate sales that what you focus on expands, yeah. right? If you focus on this part of your life, you will find success in it. And there's also a principle I've noticed that success from one area of life, if you take Brandon's approach will bleed into the others. So even though maybe you spend less time on your real estate investing business, you end up having more success with it because you you're learning stuff in other areas of life that are bleeding over into that. So I know Brandon decided he was going to do a triathlon, right? He committed, he won't talk about this. That's why I have to do it. Thanks. And he had, he had eight weeks to train and Brandon's really not what you'd consider like a killer athlete, right? (laughs) He probably does not enjoy working. He's really good, like healthy diet wise, but as far as sports and stuff go, not really always been his thing. Right. I think on one old podcast before I was hosting, I heard you call it like a unit basket goal thing. Yes, yeah, yeah, that's what it is. I scored yeah. a unit basket goal thing. Very, very yeah. fast way to know this guy does not like sports. <laughs> so, so he trains for this triathlon. He goes out there with eight weeks of training. He completes it with a smile on his face. 
And a month later, he's got a mobile home park under contract. Yep. And two weeks after that, he's got like four of them under contract, right? You could not convince me that his efforts into focusing on training for this triathlon did not bleed over into how he ran that business and how he approached those goals. The same discipline, the same focus, the same way he looked at it. Okay, I have to do this. I got to break the, the biking part down into riding this many miles a day. Okay, I have to learn how to swim. I hire a coach. I read about swimming. I practice swimming every day. All those same pieces, he just started doing the same thing in his mobile home park goal. Boom same results. So for those people that are stuck in that rut, like how do I get out of this? Do exactly what Brandon said. Ask yourself where you are having success and then say, how do I treat this like that? And you'll, you'll get the same results. I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, it, it almost always bleeds over is when, when my focus got away from the money and was focused on developing myself as a person. And I've seen this in so many other people's lives, so many other people's, the wealth and the deals started flowing too. You know, and it's because it's, you have all these other things that you're growing in. Um, yeah. Amazing stuff. Amazing stuff. Yeah. Well, thank you. That's awesome. And uh, yeah, I a hundred percent agree. I, when I was younger, I used to think of people who were millionaires and like some people who are super wealthy as like, so one-sided and that like, you know, like, like, like the guy at the gym, right. That has like the, like a huge upper body. And then like this old girl leg, right. <laughs> Skips like yeah, that, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But like, that's, that's actually not what I see more often. I think that's oftentimes a judgment we make because it makes us feel better. Like, Oh, well they're rich. So I bet they're a crappy husband, but no, mm-hmm. what I actually see more often is not, is people who are really successful in one area. They are like most millionaires I know have a six pack. It's like the best way I know how to explain it is the most millionaires I know either have a six pack or close to it. Most millionaires I know are really actually pretty good husbands. Um, Most people I know who are just really good fathers are also really good at, you know, business. It's because, yeah, they do bleed over. And I think that the evidence is out there. And and oftentimes I think Hollywood makes us think that there's a it's like you have to pick one. Uh, There's a danger Mm -hmm. of that. But I think, yeah, the bleeding over is huge. So very cool. Well, all right, Gabriel, we got to move this thing on. This is fantastic. So let's move over to the next segment of our show. It's called the Deal Deep Dive. Deep Dive. All right, the Deal Deep Dive is the part of the show where we dive deep into one particular deal that you've recently accomplished, or maybe not so recently. Uh, could be a good one, could be a bad one, but we just want to go real deep into that. So, uh, Gabriel, do you have a deal in mind that we can pick apart in here and get numbers on? Yeah, I'm going to actually um, talk about a deal. It was a single-family home okay. uh, that I purchased with seller financing, and this was actually, gosh, close to 10, probably 10 years ago. Uh, okay. But I think, I think it'll be beneficial to, to the listeners. Perfect. All right. Well, so the first question I have is usually what kind of property is you said single family, but where was this located uh, at? So this was located in Eugene, Oregon, and it was near campus. So it was in a neighborhood, but it was also demanded campus rents, which it was not getting when I purchased it. All right. And how did you find this deal? I found this, I had purchased a couple other properties from this seller. Okay. Very cool. That's like, let me pause here. Uh, that's what we don't talk about very often on this show is that if somebody sells you one property, especially seller financing, like what a great opportunity to get more. They click like, they're like your ideal customer. Um, it's like this popular business thing. Like, I mean, this is like famous business advice, right? It's like, it's 10 times easier to sell more to an existing customer than to find a new customer. It's the same thing applies to, to seller finance deals as well. So anyway, that was, yeah, no, and I've had multiple sellers say, Oh yeah, this is my last one. And then they call me and say, Hey, I have another property. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, yes, that's I funny. Am. Yeah, because they see you have a track record of making your payment on time yeah, yeah. here, man. I mean, that's the biggest concern most sellers have is if I do this, how do I know you? I, you're, I'm not going to foreclose on you yeah. and take it back. It's the same thing with real estate agent sales. There's all this, this, these programs and sales gurus that are saying, buy this thing and we'll help you find clients. And you've got all these agents running around looking for new clients. They never talk to the people that already bought yeah, a house. Yeah, yeah, you're so you right. Know, <laughs> so talk true. to the guy that, that bought a house from you four years ago. He's got all these friends that he could send your way. Right? Yeah, I don't know yeah. why we don't think like that, but it's, it's a very good point. All right, next question. Uh, how much did you pay for this house? I paid two fifty five. 255k and how did yes. you negotiate what was the negotiation process look like and how did that work into the seller financing yes so for for this deal it was one of those examples where the price was fair it was a decent price but i knew the property was was under rented and so i was willing to give them the price they wanted um, with the terms that I needed to make it happen. So for this particular deal, I did no money down. In fact, I made $2,500 at closing, uh, actually a little bit more than that from collecting the, the prorated rents, deposits and, and such. Um, and that, yeah, and that's something that I don't think is talked about a lot either is there's multiple deals where, uh, I've been able to actually walk away from closing with cash in hand from the prorated rents and deposits. So for this particular yeah. property, it was somewhere between $2,500, $3,000, but essentially a no money down deal. Okay. So we were, I was going to ask how you fund it, but did yep. you fund it completely with seller financing? 100% seller, 100% seller financing. Okay. So then we'll skip to uh, what did you do with this? Was this a flip? Was it a rental? Yeah. So this was a rental. And the when I bought it, there were tenants living in there. Um, as I said, it was a college. It was near the college. They were only paying $1,255 a month for rent. Uh, which was below market rent. So um, the deal that I negotiated, my payment to the seller was eleven twenty five a month, and so it, it essentially broke even with the current tenants after you factored in property taxes and insurance and such. But I knew this was under rented, and so when they moved out, I immediately and, and there was some deferred maintenance. But when they moved out, which was a couple months later, I got tenants in there at sixteen hundred a month. And I use this example and this example, not all the seller financing deals are this easy, but so they move out, I get new tenants in there at 1600 a month. And now I'm cash filling a little bit. They're in there a year. They move out. I do a very light renovation. I needed some flooring, some paint, some cleanup. I put probably $4,000 into the property and now it's renting for 2250 a month. And so here's a property that was renting for 1255, was able to create a thousand dollars a month in cash flow just from knowing, knowing the market, knowing the location and knowing this property was under rented. The seller was still happy as can be because they were getting their monthly payment of 1125 and they're still not dealing with tenants and turnover and repairs. So everybody, everybody walked away happy from this deal. That's so cool. That's so so cool. Do you still, you still have it today, right? I still have that. I still have that today. Um, I had since refied out of uh, the seller financing and I have a long-term fixed loan on that property. Very cool. So final question, then what lessons did you learn from this deal? that if you can find, if you can find hidden value in a property and you know the market, uh, you can, you can create a lot of value, uh, with not a lot of money. It did not take a lot of money to get this property up and running to where market rent should be. It just took, uh, knowledge of, of the market and of the property. Perfect. 
Fantastic. If, if someone's listening to this podcast, that's the way that I feel like bigger pockets gives you a competitive advantage over people that are not is you're learning the creative ways people use to make money in deals or make deals work. So if we're in a market like 2010, where there's just deals everywhere you look, you, you, you know, it's like hitting water. If you fall out of a boat, educating yourself isn't as important because you just have to have access to the MLS. You can find a deal. But in today's market, when people complain, that's where this kind of information is the best. We just interviewed, I think it was James Daynard about the Seattle investor. He blew me away with some of the ways that they look at deals, you know, buying something like taking a couple, like several houses on one plot of land, dividing it up, selling off two of them, keeping the third one he's in with yeah. no money. The very same, similar to what you're saying, Gabriel, you know, you can make a deal work that everyone else is complaining. They can't make work because they need traditional financing and you're using seller financing, all of a sudden it opens up doors. And I think that that's just brilliant. This, this deal you're describing, you're not talking about something that just no one could ever find. It was such a great, amazing deal. You bought it at 50% of ARV or something. It just sounds like kind of a standard house, but the way you creatively structured it made it a really big win for you. I love it. Yeah. And it was, you know, it was an okay, it was an okay price, but there was upside potential. And it was, this was actually the first house I had turned over to property management as well. I managed my own properties for the first four years. And then when I got to about 17 units, uh, it was 10 o'clock at night and I'm fixing a toilet and I'm spending my little ones at home and I was spending my, my time. And then I had to call a plumber anyway, cause I, I was yeah. handy, but not, but not that handy. So, you know, now I'm spending my time and then I'm spending my money. Um, and so I had already made the decision to turn, uh, my properties over and I did it unit by unit. It was a slow process to property management, but this actually was the first, the first property that I gave to property management. You know, when I had that 1600 a month, it was a conversation with the property manager at the time that saying, Hey, this is below, that's below market rent. And, and I'm stoked cause I just went from 1255 to 1600. And he said, no, yeah. let's get this, let's get this to, you know, two and then it ended up being 2250. So. Yeah, that's so cool. I, I love that story. That was a fantastic yep. deal, Deep Dive. And now let's get on to the next segment of the show. This is our Fire Round. Fire Round. It's time for the Fire Round. All right, this is the Fire Round. These questions come direct out of the Bigger Pockets forums. And we're going to fire them right at you, Gabe. So, number one. Let's go. Uh, That's a good question. So IR Revis or Rivas, I'm a relatively new investor and I was talking to some buddies and they basically told me to avoid single family homes like the plague because if one person leaves, you're at 100% vacancy. I've also heard Grant Cardone say things like that. What do you think? I mean, I've got 30 grand. I'm comfortable investing and I mean, I can buy a single family house with that. What would you do? Yeah, you know, it's a good question. And I, and I truly think, you know, everybody's, everyone's investment philosophy is different. And I don't think it's always this cut and dry, right and wrong. You know, I started in single family and, and I've met, and a lot of people do start in single family because I think that's where the mindset is. It seems easier. It's where, yeah. we're, where we're comfortable. Um, but I've also watched people start in multifamily and syndicate large deals. I don't think there's a, there's a right or wrong. You could take that 30,000 and... Uh, put in a single family home. You could put it into someone else's deal. You could put it in your own deal and bring other money in. I, I really try to take a holistic approach. Each any property I buy, any property I look at and go, what do I want this property to do for me? I I, I try not to just only uh, create one metric metric that I look at. Um, you know, I, I wish I had a hey, this is what you do, but it's it's really comes down to 
personal investment philosophy. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's yeah. great. By the way, I love that. I was going to say the argument, you're probably going to go here too, David, but the argument of like, if you have, yes, if you own one single family house and the tenant leaves, you're at hundred percent vacancy. That's true. But nobody owns one single family house long-term. Like it's like, if you own 10 single family houses and one person leaves, you're at 10%. If you have a 10 unit apartment and one person leaves, you're at 10%. It's really the exact same thing. Just, I mean, in fact, if you own a, a multifamily, you jumped right into that. You weren't prepared. You might have 10 vacant units and mm-hmm. a whole lot more money out of your pocket every month that you're losing. So there's no... Yeah. Like you said, there's not like I, a one right. I, I also just, I don't like the logic that if you're at hundred percent vacancy, you shouldn't do it. I yeah. feel like you should be able to afford a couple months of no tenant in there. Yeah. If you don't have enough money to go two or three months without rent, you shouldn't be buying real estate yet. Yeah. <laughs> you should have more yeah. money in reserve. So I'm point. not saying you have to, to invest in single family, but don't use that logic yes. that if you're at 100, that's the reason not to do it. Yeah. I don't like that. Cause yeah, you, I mean, go ahead, go ahead. I was just going to say, and, and you can create it like, a, you know, like use it as a multifamily. Uh, you guys talk about ha- house hacking all the time. I mean, yeah. my first two houses, I just rented out the other two rooms. Yep. So if it became vacant, it's, I'm still living for way less. So depending on the person's situation, if you're willing to be flexible and creative, um, you can almost create, uh, use a single family home as more of a multifamily, you know, if yep. you look at the bedroom count. Very, very true. Very true. All right. Next question here. This is from Season Price in Arizona. I was sitting around with a few members of a meetup group I'm in, and the question was asked, if you only had $500 to start your real estate investing, how would you use the money? What do you think, Gabriel? Yeah, I, I think a lot of people would say invest that in education. I would say that's, that's one possibility. I'd also say go find a no money down or low money down deal because it is absolutely possible. I even believe in this market to do no money down deals. Um, I've done deals for less than $500. You're going to have to put the work in, but uh, you can spend a lot of time driving for dollars. You can spend a lot of time on Craigslist. You can spend a lot of time meeting people and telling people uh, what you're looking for without spending any money. I'd probably buy some books and download some podcasts, which that's free too. So yeah, there you go. That's a great answer. Number three, Sean Cody asks, Hey, I'm in the Indianapolis area looking to buy my first single family property and I want to burr it in the next six months. So my question is, what is reasonable to expect from a real estate agent when you're searching for a house to burr? Should they provide comps and or ARV with every potential deal they offer? Should they know and recommend good areas to invest? Should they actively present me deals as they arise? Or do they expect me to sift through my own daily search updates that you know get automatically emailed to myself for deals? And I'd be curious, hey, David, your opinion on this as well after... Uh, Gabriel, but like, what should we expect in an, a real estate agent? You know, I, I try to generally not have a lot of expectations, especially starting off until you really have a relationship with that agent and know what kind of value they can, they can bring. Um, you know, so, so starting off, I would do a lot of, I mean, I still do analyze my own, my own deals and I want to find my own comps and I want to be comfortable. And I, I, I wouldn't rely on just one person's opinion of a property ever, um, until I've, until I have built a strong enough relationship with them and know what they're saying and what they're presenting to me is, is true. And that there's some knowledge and experience to back that. Yeah. 
That's great. It's such such a good question here. And this comes up all the time because I'm a real estate agent and we are like looking for investors to help them find property. So this is something that comes into my world constantly. What I've learned that I have to do is I have to ask the client first because you never know what their expectations are. Some people are thinking every time I send them a house, I'm, it's going to come with a full breakdown of yeah. comps of other houses and a full rehab budget. And they would be perfectly happy for me to drive to every house with a contractor and pay them out of my pocket to give them a rehab budget. <laughs> and they'll sit there and go, Hmm, yeah, that's interesting. Let me think about that. And never buy a house. Right. Yep. And then there's other agents that do nothing. They just send you a drip of an email and say, do you want to write an offer? And that's all that they, that they're offering the, the client. What I like to do is ask the client in the beginning, what are your expectations? Like, what do you need from me in order to make this happen? Our goal is to get you a property. What do you need? <clears throat> and I let them tell me, well, I would need comps. I would need uh, help finding a contractor. I would need help figuring out what the rent would be. And I'd want you to look at the deal and make sure that I'm not missing anything. That's totally reasonable. In which case I'll explain to them, well, here's how that process is going to work. I'm going to send you houses on a search that looks like this. You're going to look at the houses and you're going to ask me questions about specific homes with specific questions. I don't want, what do you think about this? Don't ever say that to an agent or anyone else. Like we don't know what you're asking. What do you think this house would rent for? What do you think the rehab budget would be on something? Then we're going to see if we can actually get it in contract. And when it's in contract, that's when the rest of the due diligence is going to start. That's when you get your rehab guy out there to tell you a very specific budget you can work with. That's where we find out what work needs to be done. A lot of investors make the mistake of wanting everything done upfront before they ever write the offer. And the, the good contractor is not going to go give you a bid on a house you haven't even written an offer on. You'd just be driving around nonstop, never making money. And I, this is so good you brought it up because a lot of investors that work with agents need to hear that, the, you know, there's a due diligence period when it's in contract for you to get that information and back out if you don't like it. So the first thing that Mr. Cody here should do, Sean, is talk to an agent and say, here's what I need from you. Can I expect that from you? And the agent can say, well, no, I'm not going to send you comps when I email you a house. But if we get to a point where we've written an offer and we're, we're looking into the inspection period, that's where we're going to make sure we get comps. So like with me, I talk to an appraiser on every deal I'm representing for a client. And I say, here's what I'm looking at for the ARV. Is that the same thing you're seeing? But I wouldn't do that for just every random house they found on Redfin and sent yeah. over to me. Yeah. Uh, great answer. Very good. Thanks. Right, okay. Last question for you here, Gabriel yeah. from Amy W. All of my tenants habitually pay on time except for one. I've had her as a tenant for nine months now and she has only paid on time twice. The weird thing is when I give her notice on the six, she pays the rent along with the late fee that very same day. Should I renew her lease and just increase the late fee? It's about 4% of the rent right now. Yeah, I, if if she's always paid and paid the late fee, I'd, I'd I'd probably have my property management company renew the lease, and, and you know, and and stuff like that was a big reason I I chose to turn my properties over to property management because I love people, absolutely yeah. love people, but I don't want to be that guy. I've had really great tenants; they're good people, and then they don't pay the rent or they or they bail out, and I don't like having to be that guy. You know, whether you manage your own properties or not, that's a personal decision. But as far as if they're paying and they're always paying the the late fee, I, I have a tenant like that that now, and I've told my property manager, hey, just just keep him there. He's pays rent every month. Yeah. And that late fee is extra money. Yeah, it's extra money. So uh, everyone's happy. Might be a sign of an unorganized tenant, not necessarily yeah. like a bad tenant. Yeah, you know, because I, I could be that way. So I need to be reminded all the time of what's coming up. You know, I could be late on something, and you bring it to my attention. Oh shoot, here, here's your money right now. They might be the same way. Yeah. 
Yeah, I had a good conversation the other day, though. One thing to, to add a piece in there is uh, we were talking about, I can't remember who it was, but a buddy of mine, uh, Ryan Murdoch and somebody else, we were talking, maybe Blake. Anyway, we were talking about the the fact that if you treat tenants differently, you can get hit with like discrimination stuff. So yeah. I would just add that as I would not just go and raise the rent on that person. Uh, sorry, not raise rent. I would not go raise the late fee on that person. If mm-hmm. all the other tenants are at another late fee, like if you're charging them, you're like, well, I'm going to charge you $50 a month for late fee, but everybody else is only 25. Like you could potentially get hit with a discrimination later on. They say, well, it's because I'm, you know, whatever disabled or this, you know, minority, or I'm a woman or I'm a man or whatever. You just don't want to deal with that stuff. Right. I've got kids. So I would probably keep that the same, but anyway, yep. cool. All right. Well, good, uh, good answers there on the fire round. Let's head over to the last segment of the show. It's our famous four. famous four. These are the same four questions we ask every guest every week here on the podcast. So Gabriel, I know you've heard it before, but we're going to throw them at you. Number one, yes. favorite real estate investing related book. Yeah, I probably alluded to this before, but I have to say Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And yep. I know nobody, nobody's probably ever said it on the, yeah, on the never, podcast never. ever. Um, you know, that that book, it, it changed my life. It completely changed the direction of my life. So it, I I have to say Rich Dad, Poor Dad and, and really everything in that series. If you had to say a second, what would you say? I'm going to start asking that question, I think, more often. Because yeah. <laughs> then we like, we'll get more book recommendations. Yeah. Well, if you had to choose a second one, what would you choose? Uh, you know, advanced guide to real estate by Ken McRoy, um, yeah, part of the, one of the rich dad advisors, uh, but also think and think and grow rich, uh, was an amazing yeah. book. Very cool. Favorite bit. Uh, sorry, David, you do it. I was going to take your question. Too late. No, too late, Brandon. Too Go ahead. <laughs> All right. Favorite, favorite business book. Yeah. I would have to say, uh, Dale Carnegie, how to win friends and influence people. Mm, and, yeah. and it's, it's a business book, but it's also just a life book and how to treat people good book, like how yeah. to just be good to people book. Yeah. It's, it's, it should be a must read. A must read. You know what I, what I was going to say about that book is the thing I love about it is it takes, it's basically how to be likable. Yep. And, and there's this understanding I think most people have that you're either likable or you're not. Yep. It's just a thing you can do. He actually breaks it down into a process of how you can become yep. likable, just like a bunch of other stuff. And I don't know that there's really any other books written with a similar, you know, this is how to become popular. There's, there's a book out there called like how to get people to like you in 30 seconds or less or something. My brother read it. I haven't, but he said it was fantastic and I like well, my brother. So it worked. Well, and the thing with this book, it's, it's, it's genuine too. It's not yeah. like, Hey, how, how do you trick people? It's like, how <laughs> well, do you, you know, how do you genuinely, you yeah. genuinely show interest in others? On that note, let me, let me, let me kill the vibe here, but make a really good point at the same time. I was reading this article yesterday about Charles Manson, you know, killer, like psychopath. Yeah. Do you know how he learned how to trick all these people yeah. into following him and murder all these people? It was that book. I read that yesterday. I was like, whoa, like clearly it works, but clearly that's it works. what I was going to say. Yeah. yeah. Like you that's can't doubt listen. the content if it'll doubt, work yeah. for guy that's so he wants to like, kill people. I mean, his person was messed up, but everyone loved him and like they would kill for him because he knew the principles in that book. So if you want to get people to kill for you, I'm just kidding. But it's like, <laughs> anyway, I do not want to be responsible for <laughs> recommending this book anymore. Well, let me make a, let me get like a little side note, right? I'll drop a little fortune cookie thing here. There is a very big difference in my opinion between nice people and good people. Yeah. And we often mix that up together, right? You're always oh, such a nice guy. And I, and I will tell people that does not mean he's a good person. Charles Manson was a very nice guy. He was charismatic. He got people to fall for him. You know, yeah. Hitler was extremely charismatic. 
like he got a lot of people to follow his vision. So just being nice doesn't matter. So like when I'm looking for agents or, or people to, to be in business with all the stuff investors look for, I don't really care on the phone if you're really nice to me. You know, I care about like, what's your track record? Are you a good person? Are you honest? Do you have a lot of integrity? And sometimes they're introverted or weirdos and that's okay. You can't just go by niceness. That's a great point. Thank you for bringing that up, Brandon. (laughs) Sorry for killing the vibe. Very dark. No, yeah, very dark. Number three. When you're not breaking the world record for diamond pushups or becoming the state champion in wrestling, what are some of your hobbies? Yeah, I, I love anything uh, to do with spending time with my family. We, we love to travel. We love to camp. Anything family, anything related to health. I love investing in real estate, obviously. That's why I'm, that's why I'm on your show. And I love contributing to the community. Love giving back. Very cool. I love that too. I've been following your Instagram and yeah, you do a, you do a good job of like, you know, hanging with the family and showing that like you value that time freedom. So it's, it's important. Yeah. It's important stuff. Yeah, it is definitely. Well, my last question is what do you think sets apart successful real estate investors from all those who give up, fail or never get started? I think it comes down to desire, but also execution. You got it. You got to want it and, and then you got to go for it. So desire yeah. and execution. Perfect. Perfect. Great answer. All right. Tell us, Gabriel, where can people find out more about you? Yeah, I think the best way if you want to connect is on Instagram or Facebook, but Instagram would be my go-to. All right. What's your Instagram? Gabriel. You'll find me if you just search Gabriel Hamill, H-A-M-E-L or Gabriel R. Hamill. Perfect. Yeah. All right, dude. Well, this has been awesome. Really, really fun. Uh, good getting to know you a little better. Again, we hung out a little bit there at the GoBundance event in Breck, but uh, Breckenridge. But yeah, yeah this was uh, really good to dig into your story and hear it. So thank you for joining us today. Looking forward to hanging out with you again in the future. Yeah. Thank you, guys. I, I had a great time. Appreciate it very much. All right. Well, thank you. This is David Green for Brandon. Don't be a serial killer. Turner signing off. You're listening to Bigger Pockets Radio, simplifying real estate for investors large and small. If you're here looking to learn about real estate investing without all the hype, you're in the right place. Be sure to join the millions of others who have benefited from BiggerPockets.com, your home for real estate investing online. The market is changing and finding your way can be tricky. Rates shift, headlines whirl, but your goal hasn't changed. You want financial freedom. And the best investors know it's not about timing the market, it's about time in the market. If you're ready to get into the real estate investing game or take your game to the next level, finding an investor-friendly agent is your next step. With BiggerPockets Agent Finder, you can find the right agent in minutes. Just head to biggerpockets.com deals and enter a few details about what and where you want to buy and bam, instantly match with an investor-friendly agent who fits the bill. These local market experts can help you navigate the neighborhoods, analyze the numbers, and take action with confidence once and for all. This free resource is only available at biggerpockets.com deals. Get an agent, get the deal, and get closer to financial freedom at biggerpockets.com deals. That's biggerpockets.com deals to find your investor-friendly agent today. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all hosts and participant opinions are their own. Investment in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. BiggerPockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.